We're back. Yours truly has visited the country of Nicaragua on a couple of occasions, and I enjoyed it both times. Beautiful place. In fact, I dare say it was a truly memorable moment to have been out swimming in Lake Nicaragua one night off of uh, Ometepe Island, looking up and seeing the Andromeda Galaxy. This certainly qualified as a dark skies location, and man, you could appreciate the fact that the galaxy looked to be the size of the full moon. Now, actually, in point of fact, the Andromeda Galaxy is the width of six full moons. If uh, its low-level light coming from its fringes could be appreciated by the human eye, which it can't. But I digress. Let's continue with the story here of the, uh, the Nicaraguan beauty queen falling out of favor with the government. Apparently, the celebrations of her beauty queen triumph provoked a queasy deja vu for the ruling family, notes The Economist. As reported on this program, all the leading opposition candidates in the presidential election in 2021 were jailed, and they've since been exiled and stripped of their citizenship. Charities have been barred as foreign agents, and independent press and many universities have been shut down. And as noted in the last segment, not even the Roman Catholic Church has been spared. Last February, a popular bishop was sentenced to over 26 years in jail. And apparently part of what irked the Ortega family was the fact that in celebrating the victory of Miss Nicaragua and the Miss Universe contest, flags were waved with the colors of the national emblem, which is blue and white, instead of the ruling party's red and black banner. The fact of the matter is those who wave the blue and white national flag instead of the party's red and black banner risk being arrested. About 600,000 Nicaraguans, about a tenth of the population, have emigrated since 2018. And over a fifth of the respondents in a recent poll by Gallup said it was very likely they would immigrate to the United States or Costa Rica within the next year. And the person who ran the Miss Nicaraguan pageant has had to flee the country. She's uh, thought to be in Mexico. And, and from Mexico announced that she's retired as the head of the local Miss Universe franchise after 23 years at the helm. Smart move. The following day, Univision, an American Spanish language TV channel, reported that the regime had pressured Miss Celebrity to resign in exchange for the release of her husband and son. The channel went on to say the local franchise would now be run by a daughter in law of the Ortegas. Surprise! Now, by controlling the franchises, we'll allow the government to ensure that Nicaragua's next Miss Universe participant wears symbols of the ruling Sandinista party instead of national ones. Nicaraguan boxing champions have worn outfits decorated with the Sandinista flag in international tournaments, and in 2021, the regime decreed it illegal for any Nicaraguan to accept national or international awards unless the recipient is approved by the government. An exiled Nicaraguan academic named Silvio Prado described it uh, described the fact that Ms. Murillo, the president's wife and his vice president, feels threatened because she thinks she's the queen of Nicaragua. And the only queen recognized by the people today was this young woman. You know, this reminds me of the fact that on, uh, on my visit down to Nicaragua, we met William Batetta, who uh, later appeared on this program as uh, the person who administers the 
Brown versus Board of Education Museum in Topeka, Kansas. We would refer you to our archives to listen to that interview if you did not hear it on the first pass. We think that'd be worth your efforts. And we hope uh, for Black History Month next month to take a look at what happened in the Bay Area when black naval workers went on strike after a huge explosion of a munitions ship rocked the entire Bay Area. The conditions were clearly unsafe. The, uh, the workers refused to load the ships unless conditions were made more safe. It was quite a big to-do. The soldiers were represented by Thurgood Marshall himself, later the, uh, the lawyer of record in the Brown versus Board of Education case, and later a Supreme Court justice himself, the first black man appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court. They apparently give, uh, give tours over at the former Concord uh, Naval Air Station regarding um, this whole incident, and I hope we'll go get one and report on it for you, dear listener. And you know, it really does make me sad to ponder the case of, of the great Thurgood Marshall and realize that, unfortunately, when he retired, it was felt that they must replace him with another black jurist. I'd like to think that they would have replaced him with someone who thought like Thurgood Marshall, not someone who was black. Because, dear listener, the judge that replaced Thurgood Marshall in the Supreme Court turned out to be Clarence Thomas. And enough said about that for now. Let's take a little detour into race relations. I think it's uh, widely agreed that segregation in the United States was not a good thing. Wasn't a good thing in South Africa either, nor has it turned out to be such a good thing in Israel slash Palestine, but we're not going there today. No, let's stay domestic and look at the fact that school officials in Evanston, Illinois, they're going to give segregation a shot, starting with the fact that test scores in the progressive Chicago suburbs have been falling, particularly among black and Latino students from low-income households. The decision was made that rather than revamp the curriculum or the teaching methods, the school board decided to take a page from the Jim Crow era and give minority students the option to be put into black or Latino, quote, affinity classes, unquote, that have no white students. And I did not know this, but apparently similar programs already exist in Oakland and Minneapolis. The theory behind this, according to one educator, is that in integrated classes, black students are expected to conform to a white standard. But uh, Jeffrey Blehar, writing in National Review, notes that this voluntary resegregation raises a number of troubling questions. Should only black and Latino students be eligible for affinity classes? Why can't Asians, Native Americans, and Jews also have classes of their own? Isn't public education supposed to socialize young children and adolescents into the world they'll be entering rather than separate them into defining racial categories? We don't often find ourselves in agreement with the people that write for National Review, but um, I think I have to here. And in recent years, politically correct people have made um, the whole issue of blackface something of a big to-do. This was recently extended with the new Bradley Cooper movie about Leonard Bernstein into a complaints about, quote, Jew face, unquote. Apparently, Bradley Cooper did not have quite the schnoz that Lenny did. So in making him resemble the famous composer more precisely, well, the nose was built up a bit. This apparently sparked outrage in some quarters. But to my knowledge, there's been quite a long tradition in, in arts and the cinema to make people up, to look like something they're not. 
And if people are going to get ants in their pants over this, it needs to cut both ways. Actually, I don't favor the old ants in the pants approach, but here's a story for you. Tunisians are, are, are getting a bit irked over the fact that there is a new movie coming out in which Denzel Washington will portray Hannibal. This will be part of a Netflix movie. Now, Hannibal is a guy we talked about on this program, and this, again, would refer you to our archives for this, for the author of Hannibal and Me, who told the story about the legendary general who took on the Roman Empire. In the Tunisian publication Jeune Afrique, they reiterate the fact that the general who battled the Romans in the Second Punic War from 218 to 201 BC hailed from Carthage, which is in today's Tunisia. It should be noted that his ethnicity was not sub-Saharan black African, but Phoenician. Tunisians complain that Denzel Washington is simply too dark, not to mention too old. The Oscar winner is currently pushing 70, while Hannibal was 29 when he drove his elephants across the Alps and into Italy. The Tunisians say their objections to Washington and the role are not racist, but are simply about historical truth. Tunisians point out that it is Netflix's American producers who have kind of a race problem because when they hear the word Africa, they assume black, which is a lazy assumption. While the population of Africa south of the Sahara is largely black, the population of the north has long been made up of Mediterranean peoples and is now mostly Arab and Berber. Anyway, my guess is that the Phoenicians were probably rather of of a brown tint, and I guess I can't resist a little detour on this matter. Yours truly has a skin of a rather brownish tint, as does Mr. McMillan. I do? Yeah, you got a little bit of walnut coloration. Okay. Anyway, to make a very long story short, yours truly has often passed for a lot of things that would be, let's just say, near the Mediterranean. While in Turkey some years back, a man puzzled over my physical features, looked at me and said, in a kind of broken Arabic, well, where are your family from? So I answered him in broken English as best I could, my family from Portugal. Some people from Portugal come from Phoenicians. He goes, uh-huh. To which I added, and Phoenician people today, Lebanon. He then looked at me and went, ah, Lebanon, yes. Now, I'm not suggesting that Netflix reaches out to me for the role of Hannibal. I, too, am, shall we say, pushing 70. But I do think it's fair to point out that if someone was described as an African-American, he isn't necessarily what you associate with the term African-American. Anyway, it's certainly not a big deal. But I can understand why they'd be a little bit concerned over in Tunisia. By the way, the Phoenicians, which did found Carthage, which battled Rome, and did come from what is... Today, Lebanon, were known as Phoenicians by the Greeks. The same people had previously been located a little more inland in some locations where they encountered the Israelite armies of the Bible and got driven out. The Bible refers to them as Canaanites. Same folks, just so you know. But uh, anyway, meanwhile, over in the Netherlands, and how's that for a segue, uh, there's been a great campaign to get rid of the traditional Dutch Christmas time character who's known as Black Pete. He is St. Nicholas's black-faced, red-lipped helper. The left apparently formed a group, a militant group, called Kick Out Black Pete. It travels to remote towns in the Netherlands that apparently still celebrate Christmas by having Santa's helper complete with uh, Afro wig and Moorish costumes and 
try to stamp it all out. Reportedly, the locals don't like this, and conflicts keep breaking out. In the village of Delir, where there was a black peat appearance a few weeks ago, residents pelted protesters with eggs and tomatoes, and the entire police force had to be rousted to break up the fight. Anyway, I don't know much about this whole black peat phenomenon. I don't know any uh, too many people from the Netherlands to ask about it. And I certainly don't know whether Denzel Washington is available to play the role. And at any rate, it's time to move on. Let's talk about some other politically correct stuff. Uh, the fact that the French are experiencing a backlash against gender-neutral French. Now, anyone who's studied uh, the Romance languages knows that one of its features, and it's not one of its better features, is the fact that everything has a gender. I'm sure many of you remember how in Spanish class you were informed that a table is la mesa, feminine, but a book is el libro, masculine. And of course, as a student, if you ask the logical question of why is a table feminine and a book masculine, you're told, well, that's just the way it is. And you know, I, I think I should, we, we should take a moment to congratulate those who put together the English language for not having such stupidity blended into our means of communication. There's enough stupidity without it. Mr. Millen points out we've got plenty of stupidity without it. But yeah, bravo to English. It's the table and it's the book. Enough said. And no, we have no idea where this is going to wind up in, in battling over the French language, trying to make it gender neutral. You know, it certainly seems reasonable. And I think we're going to have to invite back our French uh, language expert, uh, Gordon Smith, to weigh in on this, uh, on this matter. All right, let's take a look at uh, someone who appeared on the show many years back, a recent piece by him. The, the author in question is Chris Moody. About 15 years ago, we had a chance to interview Mr. Moody about his book about the Republican War on Science, a war that has only gotten worse, we would like to add. In fact, we were thinking about reaching out to Chris Moody to see if we could bring him back and update things. But it turns out it may be harder to find him than I suspected. Because, in an article that he wrote for The Atlantic, he decided that given the fact that phone screens and the internet had taken over his family life, in order to gain control, he went ahead and cut the virtual cord. To quote from Chris Moody's piece that appeared in The Atlantic, Before our first child was born last year, my wife and I often deliberated about the kind of parents we wanted to be and the kind we didn't. We watched families at restaurants sitting in silence, glued to their phones, barely taking their eyes off the screens between bites. We saw children paw at their parents, desperate to interact, only to be handed an iPad to keep quiet. We didn't want to live like that. We vowed to be present with one another at home and in public. We wanted our child to watch us paying attention to each other and to him. The reality after our son was born was quite different. In those sleep-deprived early days, I found myself resorting to my phone as a refuge from the chaos. I fell into some embarrassed middle-aged dad stereotype. I developed a bizarre interest in forums about personal finance and vintage hats. I spent up to four hours a day looking at my phone while right in front of me was his new, beautiful life, a baby we dreamed about for years. My wife, Christina, felt abandoned in the isolation of new motherhood and complained of my near-constant phone use. When you look at your phone, she told me, it's as, it's as though you disappear. To which Moody said, when it comes to having an unhealthy relationship with technology, I'm in good company. Most of us find that smartphones have made our lives better, but we struggle to use them in healthy ways. 
American adults spend an average of four and a half hours on their phone each day, the research firm Insider Intelligence reported last summer. Almost all of us keep our smartphones within arm's reach during waking hours, Gallup found, and most of us do so when we sleep. So seeing that there was a problem here, Chris Moody decided to get off the internet. He notes to the piece that as millennials born in the mid-1980s, my wife and I are part of the last generation to have known life before the introduction of widespread home internet access. We straddle both sides of the digital revolution. We remember answering the telephone without knowing who was calling, showing up at a friend's house unannounced. We remember what it was like to be lost and bored. In my 20s, I traveled across Europe, Latin America, and Asia for months without a phone, relying only on guidebooks and advice from strangers. I hitchhiked across the American South with a flip phone. I did a stint on a commercial fishing crew in Alaska, which put me completely off the grid for five months without access to a phone or the internet. So, he knew it could be done. Notes Moody, opting out of the internet would require us to opt into a landline, which raised even more questions. If we needed to call a doctor, how would we find a phone number? What if we need an emergency plumber? Well, it turns out he said that the yellow pages still exist. When the technician from the phone company arrived to put in our landline, I asked him, do you install many landlines these days? He said, mostly just for old people. Now for work, Chris Moody still has to get on the internet at times, which he does at work. He notes that by the end of the first week in his experiment, his phone reported that his screen time had plummeted 80%. I had reclaimed several hours a day, time that I used to play games with my son, cook elaborate meals, engage in uninterrupted work, and take long walks with my family. He notes that friends and family have responded with bewilderment and concerned amusement. I could never do that, people often tell me, but I wish I could. When we aren't home, callers seem amused to leave a real voice message on our answering machine. It's fun to tell younger people to leave messages. They are adorably befuddled by what to say. When a friend in her 20s tried to call and got a busy signal, she figured the phone was broken. She'd never heard that sound before. Anyway, the plain fact of the matter is, a lot of us may talk about doing this, but we're not gonna. Well, we'll have to send him a snail mail letter to ask him if he wants to be on the show. Well, I would like to have him back on the show and explain to us a little more detail about how this can be done. In other tech news, I have a piece here from New Scientist magazine about an interview with a roboticist named Josh Bongard, who told author Ed Gent that we need to bring AI into contact with the real world. His feeling is that AI may never reach its full potential unless it can interact with the physical environment, which means we need to give it a body. Well, our question here at Radio Parallax is, do we really, really need to give it a body? I'll be back. Let's just say we have our doubts. Let's take a few moments in the time we have left to weigh some questions of technology. We reported last year that the Bay Area's largest state park was debating over allowing off-road vehicles to use the park. Now, in case you're not familiar with it, the Henry W. Coe State Park is pretty big, 87,000 acres. Three times the size of San Francisco. It is, in fact, a sprawling collection of former cattle ranches. It's got more than 250 miles of hiking trails and old dirt roads. The park's trails and former ranch roads are now used by backpackers, horse riders, and mountain bikers. 
The question is, should they allow off-road vehicles? The article I have on this was referring to how they were going to discuss this uh, early last year, and I don't know what the final decision was, but we need to look into this. We hope it's no, right? We do hope it's no. But I've been puzzled over the fact that while I was hiking recently, uh, somebody went blowing past me on an e-bike. Now, an e-bike is a bicycle with an electric motor that makes it a motor vehicle. Motor vehicles are banned from a lot of parks and trails. And why shouldn't e-bikes be? So we can't be pleased to note that the good people at the East Bay Regional Park District voted recently to, uh, to permit Class 1 e-bikes, and I'm not sure what the classes mean, on all the trails and fire roads where conventional bicycles have been allowed. That's within this district's 125,000 acres of parkland, an area that spans Contra Costa and Alameda counties. Now, the article I have does explain the difference between Class 1 and Class 2, if I'd bother to read the darn thing, but it notes that uh, Class 1 describes battery-powered pedal-assist vehicles capable of traveling at about 20 miles an hour, but the Class 2s also have hand throttles, and they don't require pedals at all to accelerate. So at least they're keeping uh, the e-bikes with the throttles off these trails, but um, I I don't know. Perhaps I should get more familiar with the capabilities of these different bikes. All I know is somebody blowing past me on the trail was kind of startling. But if the truth be told, I could have been probably equally startled if he was on a conventional bike. I don't know. More research is needed here. We do have to hope that, you know, jerks on bicycles, whether they're e-bicycles or regular bicycles, will not uh, prompt people in the park district to start putting up speed humps on the trails. Yeah, or speed limit signs. Yeah. I'd be very disappointed to see traffic lights in the back hills. Solar powered, of course. Now, e-scooters are causing some, uh, some, some irritation in urban areas as well. Last spring in a referendum in Paris, 90% of those who cast their ballots voted to ban all rental scooters from uh, the city's sidewalks and streets, I presume. CNN quoted a Jill Philopic describing the situation in Washington, D.C., saying it's become a theater of scooter dodging. I routinely witness scooter collisions with cars, bikes, and pedestrians. Why does anyone think this is a good idea? And of course, some of the folks behind these e-scooters are the people who want to have the, quote, 15-minute city urban planner type people who think that everyone's going to be walking and cycling their way around vast swaths of city landscapes. And don't get me wrong, I think there's a role to play for such uh, scooters. But uh, Bloomberg did note that one lesson from Paris was that uh, the openness to urban tech experiments has changed post-COVID. City residents are clearly increasingly wary of Silicon Valley-driven urban innovations like delivery-only ghost kitchens and e-scooters littering the streets. All right, we've got about two or three minutes left. So I think I'll pull up a preliminary bit of comedy that we've been working on, which was a description of the mottos that guide... Silicon Valley. We've come up with five that we think may need to be reworked, but here's what we have so far. I guess we might call this uh, sections of the mission statement of Silicon Valley. Starting with, we are more important than you are because we do more important things than you do. The second one might be one barred from Commodore Vanderbilt. If it's not nailed down, it's ours. And if we can pry it up, it wasn't really nailed down. And its corollary, might makes right. And maybe a fourth guiding principle, we will define what progress means. 
And finally, a fifth, which is, we are building a better world. Well, for some of us at any rate. You mean making the world a better place for us? Sure, I'll go with that. And finally, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's end this off with something we used many years back, which was a look at business strategies often in, employed in the real world. Business strategies which stand in contrast to the Dakota tribal wisdom that says when you discover that you're riding a dead horse, the best strategy is to dismount. We noted many years ago, and would note again now, that in business, however, other strategies are usually tried, such as one, Hire consultants to revive the horse. Two, appoint a committee to study the horse. Three, this one I really like, arrange a visit to other sites to see how they ride dead horses. And of course, you can have number four, which is rewrite the standards for dead horse performance. I'm losing track of the number we're at, but here's a suggestion. You can announce that horses are better, cheaper, and faster when dead. And of course, you could get the horse a website. You could go to conferences featuring industry dead horse leaders. And lastly, one can always purchase other horses of identical utility. Well, I think that about does it for today's program, which was, like all of them, produced by Edward McMillan, who does make the suggestion that they could always harness several dead horses together to increase their speed and power. Anyway, we might have a minute left here or so, so I guess I'll throw out three memes in a lightning round. Number one, a thief broke into my house last night. He started searching for money, so I woke up and searched with him. Two, it's been a bit of a strange day. First, I found a hat full of money. Then I was chased by an angry man with a guitar. And lastly, the fact that there's a highway to hell and only a stairway to heaven says a lot about the anticipated traffic numbers. That does it. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week.